love the Word of God. We love going through uh, the Bible expositionally. And that just means we love going chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we are in the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 12, and we've been in, we've been in Hebrews now for almost a year, um, which is pretty cool. Um, we love just going and seeing each verse as they are. And not just reading it, but letting it read us. That's the point, is we're putting ourselves before the Word and letting it read us. So, I know you just sat, but let's stand for the reading of the Word. We'll be in Hebrews 12, 4 through 11. Hebrews 12, 4 through 11. And it should be on the screen behind me as well. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which we all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So the book of Hebrews. um, Pastor Tim Keller, he calls the book of Hebrews this. He says it's intense public pastoral counseling. That's what the book of Hebrews is. It's intense, public, pastoral counseling. Uh, These people, this audience, this original audience, they're ready to give up or at least give in uh, to the pressure to revert back to their old religion, to to Judaism, and to distance themselves from Jesus. The pressure is rising culturally. Persecution is increasing, growing more and more. And the writer of Hebrews is attempting to convince his audience in a pastoral way That following Jesus under the new covenant is the better way. That's what the book of Hebrews has been about. And it still remains. Jesus is better than Judaism or some sort of religiosity in any form or shape. Regardless of the cost. Regardless of the pain. Regardless of the drama it might bring to your life. Regardless of persecution. Regardless of suffering. Jesus is still infinitely better. And he'll ultimately lead you to a life full of freedom and promise. This is what he's trying to get across. So last week we saw that the book stayed consistent, right? We saw that um, the author was again saying, not only is Jesus better, but looking to him in all things. What we just sang about, looking to him in all things is the, the only way we can endure. It's the only way we can last in this life. And we need endurance through the inevitable troubles that this life has to bring. Um, and, and, and those troubles are due our own sin. They're due the sin that surrounds us in this world. And it gives us this nice little metaphor, right? We hear this metaphor 
this, uh, this kind of sports metaphor, athletic metaphor. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. Sounds kind of nice and poetic. You know what race, that, that word race in the Greek is the word agon. And that's where we get the word agony. That's this cute little metaphor that he's saying is that, that biblically speaking, life is not a walk in the park. But life can be an agonizing journey. Life can be an agonizing journey. Because of sin, that is more biblically appropriate than just a walk in the park. So maybe it sounds a little dramatic to go, agonizing life, maybe to us especially, in this moment in history. Uh, yeah, I don't know if life's that bad. Um, and if that's the case, I think it's important for us to acknowledge And we did a little bit of this last week, but it's important to acknowledge the unique time we live in in history. Because historically speaking, um, life has been incredibly hard. Agonizing would be appropriate. Um, But we live in a time of plenty. But because of that, I think we could say, historically speaking, there's probably never been a culture with a lower pain threshold than us. With a lower pain threshold. We can be an easily triggered group. We can be easily offended. We are a safe space culture. We, in general, feel entitled to get what we want when we want. Can we be honest? And the reason why we feel that way is typically we can. So we live in a unique place in history. It's happening in our schools and government, in our interactions with one another. This sense that we're entitled. We have rights. We have comforts. And that's what defines our life. That's maybe the vision of the good life is maximizing our comfort and maximizing our happiness. You know this. Does anybody work in customer service? Yeah, yeah. You could probably tell some stories of how this is true. We don't like it when we're offended or disturbed. Some may call this progress. Others may call it coddling. But whatever whatever side of the argument you're on, I think we can all say, we need help becoming a people who can handle the brutal realities of life. We need help in this. A people who can endure hardship, endure troubles, and not just try to always be avoiding them. So last week we, dis- we discussed that our lives tend to be insulated with comforts, not available to many in the globe, and now and certainly throughout history. So we must be careful not to be lulled to sleep because trials, suffering, which we saw last week, are a way in which we actually grow. We actually develop as persons. We face these things. So suffering shouldn't be sought, for sure, but it doesn't always need to be avoided. And that's what the encouragement is today, is that, is that there is a way forward. We know that the world isn't as it should be. So last week in our conclusion of Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, um, we said this, because of sin, because of the fall, To be human is to suffer. So as we go through the word, 
we see that suffering is even central to Christianity itself. And therefore, looking to Christ offers us the only true comfort, the only true understanding to endure until the end. Every other comfort, every other encouragement, every other explanation is just a half-truth, or at best, our sinful attempt to escape this momentary affliction. He's trying to give us a way forward through the race, through the agony. So we look to him, we look to Jesus, because he set an example for us, right? He showed us. He came, lived among us. He experienced pain, trials of being human, but he did so perfectly. He showed us perseverance through incredible bodily and emotional suffering. He was rejected. He was despised, the word said. He demonstrated how to endure undeserved pain and not retaliate. Isn't that beautiful what our Savior did? Is he experienced undeserved pain but did not retaliate. Hebrews also says that he was tempted as we are tempted. This is a crazy thing. So imagine your, imagine your life. Think about your moments of greatest temptation where you are met with your, your own sin, You're met with an opportunity to sin. Christ experienced the same temptation and was yet perfect. He was sinless. So the writer of uh, of Hebrews names Jesus as the one to whom we look to as the founder and perfecter of our faith. So this morning, um, I want us to connect some dots here. And I want us to see why the writer of Hebrews uses... The discipline of a father to encourage his listeners, to encourage them then and encourage us now. Uh, First, I want to take a look at this idea of perfecter, this title given to Jesus, perfecter. That's always been a little bit confusing. I'm like, what's being said there uh, about Jesus, that he is the perfecter of our faith? I want to take a look at two scriptures in Hebrews, in which I think gives a little bit of clarity on what He might be saying there. These two scriptures, um, 2.10 and 5.8-9, says this, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For it was fitting that God should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Should make Jesus, the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. It's an interesting thing. And then verse 8 and 9 here. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So this idea of like being made perfect, Jesus, I kind of thought he was perfect. Is Jesus, was Jesus imperfect? Was he sinful? Absolutely not. And the writer of Hebrews doesn't let us think that. There's Several moments throughout Hebrews where he emphasizes that Jesus was sinless. So what's being said here? As Jesus, the perfecter. I think John Stott kind of clears up some of the confusion. But this is a deep thought. This is what he says. This is John Stott from his book, The Cross of Christ. Christ, in his human form, needed further experiences and opportunities in order to become mature or to grow. In particular, he learned obedience from what he suffered. He was never disobedient, 
Okay, that's the difference. But his sufferings were the testing ground in which his obedience became fully grown. So if suffering was the means in which the sinless Christ became mature, how much more we in our sinfulness do we need it? That's a heavy truth, right? That's even a little scary to think about. So Christ was never suffering because of his own sin. He he was never sinfully weak, but he grew through trials and weaknesses of his humanness. We, on the other hand, are sinful and are sinfully weak. But the same process is how we grow. It's how we mature. We grow like Jesus grew, the scripture says, in wisdom and stature with God and with others through facing hardship. It's one of the, one of the main ways. And, and this, so getting at this really helps me understand uh, when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and I think we have it, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, you, you know it. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. And he says this, for when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's an interesting thing to say. But what he's saying is when we're weak, when we're struggling, when you're in the valley, the darkest point, that moment of weakness, God is working. He's doing something in you. He's shaping you. When we're weak, we're actually strong. So the concept here is this. Uh, I'll illustrate it by talking about mountain biking. I love getting to ride mountain bikes. Um, But several weeks ago, I hadn't ridden in a long time, and I got out on the trail. We have this awesome trail here, Irwin Park, right? Has anyone been there? And I started biking, and a a combination of things happened. One, I was not in good shape, and I'm not in good riding shape, and I began to ride, and I noticed that there was a lot of other riders around, and that combination mixed with my uh, ego not wanting to get past, I was pedaling my guts out. Like, no one is going to pass me. I'm about, I feel like I'm dying. My lungs are about to explode. My muscles are on fire. I was riding hard, but I was not feeling strong. I was not feeling strong. I was feeling weak. I was feeling slow. And uh, if you've ever exercised, you, you know what I'm, I'm saying Your legs feel like jello. The muscles feel just empty. But this is the principle of growth. Growth through training. It requires muscles to be broken down in order that they grow back stronger. If you you know about uh, how exercise works, how training works. So the next time I rode, a week later, I was stronger. My muscles had repaired. I was getting stronger, I was getting faster, and so on and so forth. And kind of the sky's the limit for those willing to endure that pain of, of your muscles breaking down. And that's what we're talking about here. So, so God's word says when you're weak, you're actually getting stronger. 
when you're experiencing some of those breakdowns, God's actually doing something in you. That's, that's how this metaphor would work. Um, you can think of it like this. Your faith won't grow unless it's tested. Your patience won't, won't grow unless it's tried. Your courage won't grow unless it's challenged. Does that make sense? When we're weak, we're strong. So God allows us to face difficult or seemingly impossible situations because he knows what it will accomplish in us. John Newton, he says this, Everything is necessary that God sends, and nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. This is true, right? It's powerfully true. It is true. But I want to point out maybe another side uh, of the concept of suffering um, and, and trials. Jesus, when he was at Lazarus's tomb, did not quote this to the people around. He didn't turn and say, you know, everything from God is... You don't, you, you know, Lazarus just needed to die, you know? God, God obviously had a plan. That's not what he did. What did he do? He wept. And the Bible actually says that he was angry. And he raised Lazarus from the grave. God hates death. So I want to counterbalance what we're saying with God. This is not the way it should be. God hates death. He uses hardship. He uses suffering. But he also went to great lengths to end suffering and sorrow. We know he wins in the end, but we're still in the middle of the story. We're still in the middle of the story. God is still restoring in the midst of of broken world. He's using it all. That's what we're learning here. He's using using it all. So we're in this process too. We're learning. If you're a believer in the house, you know that this isn't a given. You're learning how to trust him. You're learning how to follow him. Leaning into him. Even as he disciplines us. So because God is a loving father, he will not only meet us where we are, but will use our weaknesses and even our sinfulness to mature us as his sons and daughters. Amen to that. Open your Bible to Psalms, the book of Psalms. And I want to read... I want to read this over us. This is the heart of God. This is the heart of God. Psalm 103, 1 through 14. And if you don't have a Bible, just maybe even close your eyes and, 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 and listen to this. This is his heart for us. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and with mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. But he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love toward is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And then hear this. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. That's the heart of God for us. He knows you, he sees you, he has compassion for you and me. So in order, us for, in order for us to value his discipline, I think it's incredibly important that we first see how much he loves us as his children. He knows your frame. I've always loved that, that, that verse. He knows you. He knows everything about you. And yet he still loves you relentlessly. He is a good heavenly father. Theologian J.I. Packer, he wrote this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So, because he loves us, because he loves you as sons and daughters, he disciplines you. Let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 12, 5 and 6. Hebrews chapter 12, 5 and 6. It says this. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So endurance is still the theme of our text today. But there's two things that are being said here. When he says, don't forget. Or have you forgotten? These two things. And he's quoting from Proverbs 3. But he says this. One, don't take lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't take the discipline of the Lord lightly. And two, don't give up during it. Don't give up under it. So first he's saying this. Don't be an arrogant child who ignores the discipline. That's what he's saying. And then secondly, don't be an insecure child and think that God is personally rejecting you. Those are the two warnings here. So you will not endure if you take either one of these pathways. If you try to ignore it, or if you kind of reject what God's doing and walk away. So that first one, it, 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 it's us depending on toughness, on grit, saying, I'm just going to grit my teeth, I'm going to get through it. It will eventually go away. This person would say, it is what it is. And the second way is more of a modern response to hardship. Maybe you've seen it. You just freak out. You just freak out. You give up in the middle of it. The weight of it's too heavy. The hardship is too heavy. And you say, nothing good could ever come of this. Nothing good could ever come of this. And you want to reject even the existence of a God who would let something bad happen. 
you say, if I can't see the logic, there is no logic. So both of these pitfalls, he's warning us here, indicate that the person has forgotten the proverb that follows, which says, discipline is the proof that you are loved. That's the proof here. So I want to talk about discipline because I think we can get a little bit confused on what the Lord's discipline actually is. Your mind might go to punishment. Does your mind go there? When you think of, you hear the word discipline, you think of punishment, of uh, painful, punitive nature of God. He's waiting to kind of push you down, give you a holy spanking. Godly discipline is not punishment. Okay? Godly discipline is not punishment. Christ received the total and final punishment of those sinners, us, who believe and follow him. He received that all on the cross. So for Jesus to mercifully take the punishment due us on the cross, and then for the Father to turn around and punish us for those very same sins is unjust. That's not what he does. His discipline is not punishment. His discipline is not punishment. The Bible says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So in a judicial sense, we will never receive punishment under Christ. We will never receive punishment as criminals or as the thieves that we are. But the relationship moves out of the courtroom and into the home. Because of what Jesus accomplished, we, our relationship with God the, the Father moves from God the judge to God our Father. That's what Jesus accomplished by taking the wrath, taking our place on the cross. That's what Jesus accomplished is that we can be sons and daughters of God. That's good news. So there can be consequences for our sin. But it's never retribution. It's never payback. Does that help you see who God is? He's maybe different than what you thought he was. So discipline's not a punishment, but it's loving, correction, and care. The word here for discipline, uh, it's, it's this Greek word, paideia. Paideia is actually where we get the word pediatrician. It's where we get the word pediatrician. And what's a pediatrician? One who cares for the good and flourishing of a child. So when you see this word discipline in our text this morning, and and anytime you see God's discipline, I want that to be the picture in your mind. Not God waiting to throw lightning bolts at you and expose how ridiculous you are, but a pediatrician. I'm here to take care of you. I'm here to walk with you. I'm here to heal you. Love you, take care of you, provide an environment that will be for your good. So as our Father, as God our Father, He does not allow us to continue in our sin and behaviors that will harm us, right? The parent that makes their child cry because they stop their child from playing out on 75 is neither cruel nor mean, right? We would never say that. I can't believe you didn't let them play out there. They, were, they wanted it. We would never say that. Because it's love. Here is a boundary line. If you go here, you will, you will be killed. You will be hurt. 
No matter how much the child wails and wails and wails, a parent's never going to be like, you're right. Here's a ball. You know, go get it. It would be crazy. It would be unloving. So the parent disciplines, protects, cares for. The author here does something, though, that I do want to point out. And this kind of stretches, this, this week it kind of stretched my understanding of what suffering or hardship could be. Because he, he widens the perspective of discipline to include suffering caused by outside persecution. He basically says that both of these pains serve the sovereign purposes of a loving God. And that's a little bit difficult to understand. So I want to, I want to be really clear here and, and say this just about suffering. I know we're talking a lot about suffering, and I think we have a tendency to think that, um, or, or, or maybe we've, you've heard that God's discipline, uh, when it involves the suffering, is the suffering of people, it's, it's, it's always his discipline. I, I, I want to say this. God does not cause all suffering. And all suffering is not always his discipline. But in the face of even the most unthinkable suffering, God will always care for and love as a father. And that is his discipline. He, he, he doesn't cause every event. But in the aftermath, he's caring for, loving you, walking with you as a father would. So when you see discipline here in this text, I want you to think of discipline as his care. That is what his heart is. So that's a little, that's a little tough to wrap your, your head around, but um, I believe that's precisely the goal of this text. It's endurance. It's not explanation. It's not escapism, but endurance. So let's look. Uh, I, want to, I want to look at the rest of our text this morning. Um, we're going to look through 7 through 11. Uh, and we're just going to point out maybe some of the obvious things. Upon first reading, when you read this text, you're kind of like, oh, that makes sense to me. I, I get that. And, and, and that is a true thing. And you can be confident in your first reading that what he's saying makes sense to you even today, even 2,000 years later. So uh, let's look at verse 7. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So we know that that scripture is basically saying this. For what father or what parent lets their kid do whatever they want? We know this is just not a good idea, right? Kids left alone will, will probably not make the best choices. Um, it, I, I don't, did anyone read Lord of the Flies in high school? I think that's why we had to read that book. It was like, kids alone, left on an island, does not work out. Uh, my, my parents, uh, when I was a freshman in high school, they decided to go on an anniversary trip. Obviously, they didn't take us. They left us kids at home, alone. And for one week straight, we binge-watched movies. We only ate junk food. We turned the thermostat down to like 55 in the middle of summer. There's like frost on the windows. Dad would freak out if he knew. And we only drank Mountain Dew. Whole week straight, that's all we did. 
I know some of you are like, Mountain Dew? That's not what I would have been drinking. It's from the Rockies, but not Mountain Dew. So, th- so we, we are, it's just, I can't believe that my parents let me do that, first of all. But the point is, the point is, when kids are left alone, they don't make good choices. They don't make healthy choices. They don't make smart choices. It's good that we have guidelines. Let's look at verse 8. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So that might seem a little bit um, harsh, but the author is contextualizing to his people then and there, the culture then and there, in the Greco-Roman world, a nobleman would uh, subject his legitimate son and heir to rigorous discipline. Uh, rigorous study, training, development, because the future of the father's name, uh, the the, the future of the father's name, the estate, all of that would rest upon the legitimate son. On an illegitimate son, which I know this sounds harsh, but on an illegitimate son, uh, he wouldn't carry the family name, and therefore he wouldn't inherit the property, the responsibility, the dignity due uh, a, a nobleman. And so what he's saying is to be spared of of rigorous discipline was not a sign of love, but it was a sign of rejection in the culture. And then verse 9 and 10. Let's read verse 9 and 10. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. So this is kind of, this makes sense to us. We read this and it's like, yeah. Uh, Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. So the point being made here is that even earthly fathers discipline their kids the best they can. Fathers raise their kids, discipline them, so that even in a short time, they can raise a a, a healthy contributing person to society. That makes sense to us, right? So how much more then, how much more loving, how much more effective is God himself as father guiding and correcting us in the way we should go? So I want to add a note here. Um, when, you, when you see this, this metaphor of God as father or this, this idea of God as father, um, Maybe you're, you're, you don't question that. Yeah, God is the father. Um, but maybe you do question, um, is he a good father? Or maybe even you can, you can wrap your mind about, about, him around, about him being in general good. But maybe your question is, is he, will he be good to me? Will he be good to me? And when you see the, the, the pointing back to the earthly father thing, it's like, this isn't really encouraging to me. Maybe your life has been uniquely challenging when it comes to parents. Perhaps you had a bad earthly father. Maybe you didn't have a father at all. I want to say this. Protect yourself when you see something like this from projecting your experience onto God and His perfect fathering. This comparison is only helpful in so much as it shows anyone that's had a parent how much greater God is. How much better Jesus is. How much more we have in God. So, 
be careful that you don't try to project your, your, maybe your earthly experiences onto God the Father because I think the enemy wants to use that and he'll puncture, puncture you with that wound and then he'll twist the knife. He doesn't want you to know that God is actually a really good father and he's really trustworthy. So watch out for that. And then verse 11 Upon first reading, we see that discipline hurts. Discipline hurts. But, like we've been saying, it produces in us a harvest of character, godly maturity that cannot be gained any other way. So this is us in the middle of trial, in the middle of testing and suffering, looking to Jesus and seeing what is ahead having vision that this momentary pain is worth going through for what we will gain in growth from where we're going. It's worth it. So maybe to uh, add another idea or definition to discipleship, I would say this, God's, or sorry, to discipline, I'd say that God's discipline in our life is this. It's temporary, designed, non-destructive pain to help us escape the lasting painful consequences of sin unaddressed. Is that helpful? His discipline is is temporary and it's within his design and it's non-destructive to your life. So when you're tempted to get out from underneath, God, this is tough. I don't know what, I don't understand everything. When you're tempted in that moment, be reminded that this, this will not destroy you. And it's in his design. And our life is a vapor, so it's temporary, even if it lasts your whole life. That's, in eternity, it's just a blip. I hope that comforts you. So unless we see our lives in this way, unless we can see hardships and suffering in this way, see it as God's discipline, we we aren't going to make it. That's what the author is getting at. You won't be able to endure. This is what will happen. And this is the warning. We'll turn to other things that are not God. And what the enemy will attempt to do is he will attempt to get you to doubt God's goodness altogether. And in turn, what you will do, when you doubt God's goodness, you will begin to question his authority in your life. You'll begin to question his authority in general. And eventually you'll be able to walk away from God because you in your mind have dealt with that. I've seen this too many times uh, in in church specifically. A person confronted with brokenness, confronted with pain, with maybe their own sin, maybe confronted with the sins of others, some wound that happened to them. That person not anchored in the truth that we've been talking about becomes confused, frustrated, and in that pain, in that hardship, instead of seeing it as an opportunity for God to work and provide and care for and discipline in a loving way, they push the eject button. And they begin to just deconstruct faith itself. So this is a warning. I don't want that for anybody here. Anybody that can hear God's word this morning, I don't want that for anybody. But you might say... an opportunity for growth. 
you're in the middle of it, that doesn't sound so great, right? That's not as comforting as maybe we would hope. So I'm not trying to oversimplify the complex struggles that you may be facing. But hear this. As an example, some of the most painful discipline experiences that I had growing up, some of the most painful moments of discipline that I received growing up, 20 years later, are the moments in which I I look to my dad and my mom and I say, thank you. Gosh, it was awful then. But I look to him and I say, thank you. Those are the very moments 20 years later that I thank them for. No one, and when you're in the middle of these things, no one uh, understands it completely and no one, uh, it's very difficult to enjoy it. (laughs) But he's doing something. And I think that's what you need to be reminded of. That's what I, man, just this week being in this text was reminded of. Don't try to ignore, right? This is verse five. Have you completely forgotten? Have you forgotten? Don't try to ignore his discipline. Don't try to ignore the hardships or just get through it. And then secondly, don't give up. Don't give up. No matter no matter what it looks like, no matter how hard it is, because what you're going through, God sees it. And he's actually drawing you to himself. He's making you strong. He's making you humble. Which I would argue is maybe most important of all. Because when you're humble, you trust him. And you follow him. And there is no way forward on our own path. So he humbles you. He does. It's humbling. But he sees you. And not only does he make you strong, not only does he make you humble, but he's making you into the image of his son, Jesus. In the middle of that struggle, he's making you into the image of his son. Amen to that. So I want to add, this is just one, this is just the last practical thing since we've been talking about parenting and fathering. I think this is important. Our earthly fathers here on earth, they are to be a shadow, a glimpse of what love could be. We parent, we, we, we father, we mother, we do so imperfectly, very imperfectly. And when you hear a text like this, I want to remind you uh, of a couple things. One, that when you hear the proverb, train your child up in the way they should go, and even when they're old, shall not depart from it. I want to say this. That's not a biblical guarantee, but what it is, is it's guidance on the importance of godly parenting for your whole life. Not just for that short time, but for your whole life. It's showing us the importance of showing, demonstrating for your child that there's more to the meaning of life than maximizing happiness and maximizing comfort. And isn't that the vision of living that we have today, that our culture has today? Maximization of comfort, maximization of happiness. That's what it is. But it's, it's much more than that. So maybe your child has departed from the faith right now. You, you know where your child is and they've departed from the faith. Maybe they, they've actually never followed 
Jesus at all, maybe you feel like you failed them or you could have done more. My encouragement to you is that God is not scowling at you. He's not angry with you. All of us who parent will fail our children in many different ways. God knows this. He knows your frame, remember? And he will always work in spite of it. So it is never too late to model for our children humble obedience to our Heavenly Father. Never too late for that. To model surrender to Jesus, especially in times of hardship, is one of the most compelling witnesses to our children, whether they're seven or whether they're 47. Keep going. That might be, that might be your suffering right now. Don't give up. God sees you. He knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly where your child is. And he loves you. Don't give up. Continue to surrender. And so this morning, we get an opportunity to come to the tables of communion. And I don't know what's more encouraging uh, for us to surrender than looking at Jesus' humble journey to the cross. That he laid down his life for us. So as, as we come, and we're going to invite the ushers and hosts to come forward now. But as you come to these tables this morning, this is what I want us to be thinking on. This is what I want us to be prayerful with. God, would you help me surrender all of me to your good and gracious fathering in all circumstances? Would you help me learn to surrender, learn submission by even experiencing communion this morning and partaking in the Lord's Supper? Let's bow your head and pray. Father, we are humbled by that practice to be reminded of your sacrifice um, allows us to follow you with gratefulness, with expectation, with joy, that you came to us and you made a way for us to go forward. So we entrust our whole life. Would you help us this morning entrust more and more of our life to you? Surrender more and more to the reality of your control and sovereignty over our life and over our future and over our family and over our children, over our hopes and dreams, all of it, God, you see and are working it all together for our good. So, God, help us to make it a practice to just joyfully surrender, even in the hardships, and to see your discipline as loving care, loving protection, loving guidance over our life. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.